Welcome to the second episode of Lab Rat Chat. This podcast is supported by the Americans for Medical Progress through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements, and who is deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. In this second episode of Lab Rat Chat, Danielle and I are going to introduce you to the role of the laboratory animal veterinarian through the eyes of Dr. Steve Shipley from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. He provides some excellent insight into what the role of a veterinarian in a research laboratory entails and how the health and welfare of these animals are managed on a daily basis. This episode pretty much just jumps right into it, Dr. Shipley describing his background and qualifications. So just sit back and enjoy this second episode of Lab Rat Chat. This is the second episode of Lab Rat Chat. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Steve Shipley, who's a laboratory animal veterinarian from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And hello, Dr. Shipley. Hello, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the podcast. As a way of uh, kind of briefly introducing myself, I'm a laboratory animal veterinarian currently working at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I've been doing um, the lab animal thing for about 16 years now. My background is I graduated from veterinary school knowing exactly what I wanted to do, which was something completely different than what I'm doing. Went, spent some right. time in private general practice, you know, dogs, cats, and exotic animals. So you know, birds, reptiles, things like that. Um, quickly figured out that that's a really worthwhile way to spend time, but it wasn't the career that I really wanted. So I took a job in emergency medicine and I did that for about four and a half years full time, had an absolute blast doing the actual medicine part, but the hours and stress and the lifestyle got to be a little hard. So I went back into private practice while I was kind of figuring out what the next thing was going to be. And one day I got a phone call from a friend who was a laboratory animal veterinarian. And he asked me if I liked what I was doing. And I said, it's fine. And he said, well, that's great because I just took a new job and I feel really bad leaving my boss, a veterinarian short. So I've already talked to him about you and you need to call him up and schedule an interview. So I really quite literally fell into laboratory animal medicine, went on the interview as a, an experiment, if you will. That was not an intentional pun. I apologize. And that was 2003. And now it's 2019, and uh, this has been a really fantastic career for me, both personally and professionally. Um, right. So was the field of laboratory animal medicine something that you had thought about or considered before falling into it? Or is it something that, like, had you thought about maybe switching gears into it at all in the back of your head somewhere? Or is it just a completely, you know, out of the blue, let's just try this or experiment, as you called it? Uh, completely out of the blue. This was not something that I ever thought that I would be doing. And if you would ask me in vet school, if it was something that I was interested in, I would have probably laughed at you and said, you're out of your mind. So you knew that the field of laboratory animal medicine existed, obviously, being a veterinarian. And so you knew that potentially, it, I guess, could have been a career option because that's where I think some of my fellow classmates are. And that's where I was before I got into research. I didn't even know about the world of laboratory animal medicine. And we sure don't really talk about it in school even. But so you at least knew of it, just weren't ever planning on working in that field. Your listeners may not know, but I certainly do. Jeff, you know, you're going to the school that I graduated from. So That's I right. can't say that the last uh, 22 years um, have changed that much there. A lot of veterinary schools don't have a strong lab animal curriculum or presence. Some have more than others. 
So I kind of knew that the field had to exist, but no, it wasn't really any kind of consideration for me at all. I just knew what I wanted to do. and I was going to treat dogs and cats and birds and lizards. A lot of the lab animal vets that I've worked with have all transitioned into lab animal medicine. I think up until recently, there's been a shift to where vets are now coming out of school with that, you know, with all the residency programs now and the opportunity to do that residency program, get specific training in laboratory animal medicine. But before that, that, I think a lot of people transitioned. I know they were equine vets or they were exotic vets or they were just small animal. And then there's an opportunity that came up and then there they are. That leads me into a question that I had. Um, Since you've worked on both sides of the field here, what are some of the major differences or similarities between working in a practice that deals with people's pets and cats and dogs versus working in the lab animal field? Let me touch on the similarities first. It's veterinary medicine. So my job as a laboratory animal veterinarian is to manage, prevent, and treat disease. And my job as a veterinarian in private practice was to manage, prevent, and treat disease. And my job as a veterinarian in emergency medicine was maybe not so much to prevent, but manage and treat. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we have more of a, in lab animal, there's a little bit more of a herd health. In some ways, I'm kind of like a large animal veterinarian that's taking care of the health of a population of animals. Instead of a herd of cattle, I have a really big herd of mice. And disease control prevention and then treating individual animals when they get sick is all a part of my job. The difference, and these animals have um, maybe not owners per se, but they have investigators who are using them to perform very important research. So I still have clients. Only my clients are called investigators now instead of owners. I work just as closely with them as I ever did with owners when I was working in private veterinarians. The differences, species are different. I still treat dogs and every species that you can think of that people might have as a pet. They are some laboratory animal veterinarians are working with those species as well. You know, the vast majority of my work involves rodents at this point, rats and mice, but we do have a wide range of species. And that's one of the really fun things about laboratory animal medicine is being able to work with a really diverse, wide range of species. In a single day, I can easily um, go look at, evaluate, treat, and manage, manage cases in a mouse, a rabbit, a ferret, a dog. Yeah, that so, is really cool. Yeah, maybe can you give a little insight into our listeners, too, into how many animals there might be and then how you possibly go about managing the health and welfare of all of those animals on a daily basis to ensuring that, you know, they're all well taken care of and they're eating and drinking and happy, if you will, in their enclosures. If you listen to the first episode, Danielle made a point that we should change the name from cages to enclosures because cages just sounded kind of scary, right? So. She made a good point about enclosures, and that sounds a lot better than cage. Yeah, cage sort of has that connotation that you're going to think of a metal box, and it's just lonely and barren, and that's just not at all the environment that these animals are in. So I'm just going to try to refer to it as an enclosure for this podcast, because I think that sort of encompasses the housing conditions that these animals are in. I think that's an excellent point and really appropriate. So I like to tell people, think of what I do as we run a boarding kennel and veterinary hospital all in one, essentially. So 95 plus percent of the animals that we work with in laboratory animal medicine are rodents or rats and mice. And in our current group, about 60 to 70 percent of the people that work in our program provide direct care and management of those animals. And when I say direct care and management, those are the folks that do the feeding, the watering, the cleaning, the maintaining their environments, making sure that those animals have everything everything that they need to be healthy and well. 
We have veterinary technicians that assist the veterinarians. They do a, the veterinary technicians do a lot of the rodent medicine under our direction and direction of, of the veterinarians. We actually have people whose full-time job it is we in the lab animal world, we call it enrichment. And that's basically enhancing the environment, the enclosure, since that's the word we're going to use. The enclosure of the animal to enrich it and make it more interesting and complex so that these animals have something to do with their time for the larger species, for species that enjoy direct interaction with people. And not all laboratory species do enjoy, you know, direct interaction with people. But for the ones that do, that positive, frequent human interaction is a really important part of, of the care that we provide. Think species yeah. like you know, your companion animals, dogs, cats, primates, rabbits, things like that. Yeah, so, we tried to reinforce um, some of that or introduce some of that in the first episode. We just talked about the importance and the requirements that have enrichments, socially house these animals, make sure that they're with a partner, you know, a social partner that they can interact with because it all just goes into their welfare and their well-being, right. which at the end of the day is important not only for their own health and welfare, but for also for the science and the research that's being conducted. Because we don't definitely want to make sure that all these animals are used to the highest of their potential and make sure we get the best data out of the research that we can without having to order or use more animals than we need. So right. we tried to and really so, kind of touch on that in the first episode. Yeah, so that kind of husbandry enrichment, it forms the basis of, of what we do. Veterinary group, then when animals get sick, then we manage that. Just like if you have a pet, you take, you know, if your dog gets sick, you take it to the vet. In this case, the vet's right here. One of we our... actually get faster vet care. <laughs> Yes. And you have all the same um, type of medicine, diagnostic equipment, surgical rooms, operating rooms, all of that, that you would. That's identical to private practice or elsewhere. But I mean, you have all those tools available to you to take care of these animals, correct? You're not trying to MacGyver, you know, the health of these animals. You have actual tools. We have, that you're a, we have a full diagnostic lab with two full-time employees. We have, yes, surgical facilities, x-ray, ultrasound. There is CT and MRI that we needed. It's there. We have blood work, the ability to do blood work, cultures, prescribed medications. The vast majority of our animals are seen within an hour or two of being seen by. I think I'd, another point I'd like to bring up, having worked in this field and worked with vets, I think it's important for our listeners to know that the attending veterinarian at a lab research facility actually has the final say so in the health of that animal and can remove them from a study because their health is priority number one. You know, so if there's a debate over needing information, data from that animal or the care and well-being, the vet gets that final decision making. And most of the time, I think the investigators are happy to oblige. But I think it's important to kind of also say that the care of these animals is what is so critical. Danielle, that is an excellent segue right into the regulatory side. That's a really important, you're talking about one of the differences between what I did when I was in practice and what I do now. One of the biggest differences is the regulatory side. So animal-based research is very, very highly regulated at local, state, and federal levels. Every research facility that accepts funding from the federal government to do research I've spent my lab animal career in academics, and so grant funding from the government is a big part of the way that science gets done in the United States. You actually sign a contract. Your institution signs a binding contract with the government saying there are rules that have been set up, and you say, we will follow and abide by these rules. There's also federal law that covers not all, but a good number of um, yeah, the Animal Welfare Act right. and, and the Guide for the Care and Use of Laboratory Animals. And I'm not going to bore your, the listeners with the details of who covers what and whatnot. Yeah. Everything that we do is is reviewed by a committee that involves members of the public two times a year, every year. 
we get one unannounced visit from the United States Department of Agriculture a year, every year. And every three years, we have a very, very comprehensive overall review of the university's entire program of animal care. So it's really highly regulated. And one of the primary and one of the primary jobs of a laboratory animal veterinarian is to provide that specific expertise to make sure that the institution is, is following the rules that it needs to and that animals are treated for are treated and cared for humanely and appropriately. So there is a policing aspect um, to my job. And Daniel, you're absolutely right. The attending veterinarian who, who then delegates authority to all veterinarians that, that work for them. So I am not an attending veterinarian, but I work for one. Has the ultimate authority to, to make decisions. So that's another difference between private practice and what I do now. In private practice, you have to ask permission for everything. And, and the ultimate authority is your owner. In research, the veterinarian is actually the ultimate authority. So, Can the veterinarian so actually put a stop to the research protocol if somebody wasn't taking care of their animals properly or was just being negligent on their protocol and not following it? Would you be able to stop it as, or would you have as to go a through? single person? I as veterinarian could intervene on behalf of a particular animal and say, this is done. I'm now treating the animal or I'm now euthanizing the animal. I can intervene on behalf of a single animal or a group of animals to stop a research project. Have you talked to your listeners about the approval, the iCook approval process? At we, all? we did. We talked about, we bored them a little bit with that okay. as well. We didn't talk specifically about the veterinarian's role in overseeing each protocol, which I know that you do as well, but we did talk so, about that so a little bit. So in order to kind of stop a an, an approved protocol, that same committee, the IACUC, has to get together and make a group decision. So no, me as a single individual, I cannot stop a research protocol. I can intervene on behalf of an animal, but that committee does have that power. Yeah, but I think that's so, important because doing something like that requires a, a team effort and a conversation. And so I think it's yes. important that it does happen that way. Not one person just goes out and maybe blindly puts a stop to a research protocol when something was simple and could have been fixed. So it's important that you can go to the yes. IACUC, you can talk about it. Maybe you can get the investigator in there and you guys can work things out to make the protocol better in the in the long run. There are mechanisms in place in every research facility where if any person at all sees something that they're concerned about, there's an actual a requirement for a whistleblower policy where there's an a anonymous mechanism that person can report a concern and it has to be thoroughly investigated by the IACUC um, to determine if something is going on that shouldn't happen. That's anybody. I think it's also important to mention the number of times that these courses of action have to be taken is so minimal. I've been in this industry for over 10 years now, and I don't think I've ever experienced a protocol being shut down or even really having a drastic whistleblower issue. I think most people genuinely want research to go smoothly. They want the animals to be cared for. And I think if there's a small hiccup along the way, investigators and their staff are usually very amicable and happy to make changes and get back on track to care for the animals. These are people who are certainly interested in getting science done, but they want to do it properly. I'm about 16 years. And generally speaking, it doesn't take the action of a committee to make something change that maybe should be changed. And those are usually, like you said, minor little tweaks or, or changes in the way we're doing things that make the animal welfare better and make the science better um, mm -hmm. all at the same time. Healthy animals make healthy research. Unhealthy animals create bad data, and that's bad science. And the people that are doing science don't want to do bad science. They no. want to do good science. If they want to continue their getting funding, right, they're going to need to show good data. And to show Correct. good data, and, and you have to have healthy animals. 
And people get into science and research much of the time because they want to make a difference in society. You can't do that with bad research. Right. So which is kind of a good segue into, you know, there's a lot of talk just about the use of animals in research and different individuals and groups that maybe say the animal research is no longer necessary. Do you still feel that in the near future that there's going to be any advances in our capabilities to do research without the use of animals in order to continue to make advancements for both animals and humans alike? Or do you think these animals are still 100% required for the foreseeable future? Because I don't see, they talk about the organs on the chip and all of that, and I just don't see that. If we don't understand physiology of the body completely, which we're not going to go down that road, I don't know how we can do computer modeling and organs on chips. So I just kind of wanted your your well, take I, on the use of it. I mean, obviously, I, I'm not trying to put you out of a job either. If there's no longer animals <laughs> being used in research, then you wouldn't have a job. But I just kind of wanted your opinion on what you really, how you really felt about how they are, how they're needed for us or our pets. I, I think it's incredibly important for us to um, always be looking for ways other than using animals to answer questions. And I think that there's a lot of value. There are a lot of things that are being done now in cell culture, in computer modeling that 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago would have been done in animal. Those non-animal models have replaced the use of animals for some things. And I see that continuing to progress. Do I think that in my lifetime, we're going to get to a point where animal research is unnecessary? I do not. I think that we will become more targeted and we should become more targeted when we use animals and being very diligent about only using animals when there is no other alternative. I'm a veterinarian. I got into this field because I care a great deal for animals. I know that some people would think, well, if you're a veterinarian, how can you do what you're doing? The answer is I took an oath as a veterinarian to protect um, animal and human health welfare. And I feel like I spend a greater portion of my day as a laboratory animal veterinarian being an advocate for animal welfare and animal and human health than I did when I was working in a private veterinary practice. And I'm not trying to denigrate folks who work in private veterinary practices. That's a very worthwhile way of spending your career. It's important. It's critical. It's just different than what I do. I'm glad they do it because I don't think I would have been very good at it in the long term. Yes, I do think that we will continue to use animals. I think that we have to be continuously thinking about not only is an animal the best choice, but is this animal the best choice? And sometimes a mouse is not going to be the answer. Sometimes you're going to need a different species, even if it's a, and I hate this term, higher order species. Yeah, I think most people in this field feel that way, for sure. That's a good point that you made. I think it goes back to the three R's concept. Um, That's where I was going. You know, we, Thank we're you. always my mind. we're always looking to reduce the number of animals that we're using to refine the procedures that we're using to make them less invasive, create less pain or distress, and when appropriate, replace animals with non-animal models. And all of those things will actually require to think about all three of those concepts every time someone sits down to write an iCook protocol that says I'm going to use animals to do my research. They have to explain. Yeah, and that's a good point that it's being actively thought of every single time. There's a new sort of fourth R that's sort of making its appearance on the horizon with rehoming of animals that maybe, you know, don't need to be euthanized at the end of a study. And a lot of these animals are able to be rehomed, which again might not be a regulation right now, but I think a lot of institutions want to see their animals get adopted out. A lot of the technicians who have worked with these animals are excited to be able to take them home at the end of the study. And I think that's another positive aspect of animal research that nobody really knows about. One of my residents spayed a rat this week that is being adopted by one of our staff. And we routinely 
most, if I won't say all, but the vast majority of research of animal-based research programs in academics and even in an industry already have existing active adoption programs. We've been adopting animals out for many, many years. So there has been a recent, a lot of interest in society in general in recent years to, to mandate or legislate adoption of animals from research laboratories. It's important as a concept for us to do that. What I would like the, the general public to know is that you don't have to write a law or pass a law to ensure that something happens when it's already happening and already yeah. has been happening. I'm not going to be partisan in any way, shape or form. Everybody has political views. I have them too. You're not going to know what mine are because I'm not going to tell you. But we don't need to be spending the time, the limited time and energy of our, our lawmakers with trying to push legislation through legislatures, um, either state or federal level, to fix a problem that already has the solutions. Right. I mean, it goes back to the fact that, I mean, as you touched on earlier, you took an oath to protect the health and welfare of these animals as a veterinarian. There's licensed veterinary technicians who've gone to school to care for these animals. Everybody in the field cares for the animals and everyone in the field is going to do all that they can to ensure that, you know, they have the best life that they possibly can, which includes well, if they're no longer no longer needed on a study and they can be safe, adopted out, you know, safely. And then they're going to be. As yes, long not as... every animal is adoptable, but not every animal that goes into a shelter is adoptable either. Now, what this does tell me, this legislation, what it does tell me is that for those of us in laboratory animal medicine, laboratory animal science have been doing a really bad job of public relations, of right. telling the public that we're doing this. And so more of, of what's happening right now with this podcast needs to happen. We need to talk about for a lot of years, laboratory animal meds been kind of hidden away and we don't want to talk about it because people might get upset. I think we should talk about it. I'm really proud of what I do and what I've contributed to research that has directly positively affected the life, health and well-being of both people and animals. And we should talk about that. That's where we went with the last episode right towards the end. It was just taking our heads out of the sand, being more transparent, openly talking to friends, family, co-workers, strangers at parties. And just letting them know what you do and making a lot of not necessarily the data, but just the information, the fact that this X, Y and Z institutions might use these animals. And this is their comparative animal medicine department. And this is what they do. Just being more transparent in general will just help foster a a more positive, I think, way of thinking about the field, because the more you try to be secretive, the more it looks like you're trying to hide something. Get it out there. Talk about what you do and be excited about it. And I think it's also important to encourage other people out there that are, you know, maybe thinking about veterinary school or maybe thinking about research, that the field of laboratory animal medicine is an option to practice medicine. It's a great career option, as you heard Dr. Shipley talk about, you know, this entire episode and at the beginning, just about how great working in the field of laboratory animal medicine has been. You still get to diagnose and treat and prevent. So I think it's important that we let everyone know that if you're thinking about veterinary medicine to consider that, especially if you're interested in research, I think that it's a great well, field. Well, if you're thinking about them. veterinary technology or animal care as well, when you look at, at current program that I'm in right now, we have um, nine veterinarians in a group of 180 people. Yeah. So that's 5% of our workforce. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a, small, a large number. Yeah. <laughs> so that means that 95% of the people that participate in this effort are not veterinarians. You know, my veterinary technicians work their butts off every day are strong advocates for for these animals and provide direct care and support and treatment. And the technicians that work in the rooms are indispensable. They 
provide these animals with everything that they need to be healthy. So yes, yeah, it's a veterinarians in laboratory animal medicine, absolutely, but also everybody else that contributes to this. Yeah, it's one big giant veterinary hospital, if you will, and it's a great place to work. And I mean, I think it's a great place to work. It maybe it's my personal opinion, and maybe we are, maybe we're a little biased, but. I don't think so. <laughs> we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't enjoy what we do. So <laughs> I think that's a good way to kind of wrap up this episode. Dr. Shipley, do you have anything else that you kind of want to mention before we wrap this up? Any uh, unanswered questions you want to put out to our listeners? I think what you guys are doing is fantastic. And people just need to talk about this. And by just talking with people, bringing, you know, bringing understanding can only be positive. You're not going to change everyone's mind. And that's okay. Yeah, that's not our and goal. We thank yep. you so much for your time chatting with us. And uh, we also want to remind our listeners to interact with us on our Twitter page at the Lab Rat Chat. We also have a Gmail account. What's the Gmail address? Labratchat at gmail.com. So send us comments and questions. And don't forget, we have those Amazon gift cards that we're going to be uh, pulling names from of people who have been interacting with us. So give right. us a shout out. Yeah, go on, leave feedback, write questions. Anything you have for us, and we'll try to answer them on the show if we can. And then, as Danielle said, we'll pull some lucky winners for the $100 Amazon gift card giveaways. So thank you again, awesome. Dr. Shipley, for joining us. It's been great talking to you. It's been a great episode. And I hope our listeners, I know our listeners, will get a lot out of this one. So thank you again. Awesome. All right. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, everyone. 